You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. And Tracy, we are back and it's nice to be back in my house where there aren't, you know, tons of people from Chicago bothering me all the time. <laughs> it's true. We're awful. Those Midwestern <laughs> Chicago people. All we, all we want to do is talk about sausage and the bears, you know, it's, it's really kind of it's embarrassing. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, pursue it to that. How, how are you doing on your 914th lunch meat sandwich? Of, oh, there's um, a lot of there. I was not expecting <laughs> as many leftovers as we ended up with on our on our little trip in Rocky Mountain National Park. Uh, yeah, yeah, your your kids really love roast beef. Yeah, uh, apparently. ham and turkey, not so much. Yeah, which I got to, you know, I'm going to own that one because when we were talking about menu over over uh, email, I was like, they love ham and turkey. They eat that all the time at home. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. Uh -huh. Apparently, rules are different when vacation children come out. Um, and, and I turned them on to smoke Gouda, so there's another Yeah, one. yeah. I, I actually, I made roast beef sandwiches the other day. And Corwin <laughs> was eating his, and he looks up, he's like, this tastes different. And I'm like, um, well, I mean, it's different bread. And he's like, no, no, no. Is this smoked Gouda? And I'm like, no, it's regular Gouda. It's all we had. And he looked at me like, god damn it. <laughs> like, you just let me down there, mom. Yep. Uh, but you know, it's, it, you're right. It's good to be back. It's good to have a guest who is definitely all in on the, on the, the, the Funko pop bop coming on in. So <laughs> you have a, you have an ally in the, the seat chair, um, <laughs> captaining the opening theme there. We've got Randy Dawn, um, who I'm both simultaneously excited about and nervous about at the same time. So excited <laughs> because uh, I know Randy. We are we are agency sisters, as sometimes I said, agency siblings. We're both represented by Bridget Smith of Jabberwocky Literary. Uh, and I'm super excited for Randy because uh, August 16th, tune in tomorrow. Her debut novel is coming out, which is fantastic. And I'm super nervous because in her day job, uh, Randy is a professional journalist and interviewer. And so I'm way out of my league here, just so far out of my league. Hi. How Hi. Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Well, you, you you succeeded in asking a question. So there you go. You oh, are good. Now. If you've if you've never listened to the podcast, Randy, there there's there's two different styles here. There's there's Tracy who does prep work and comes up with some very thoughtful questions. And then, oh, squirrel. Anyway, um, so, so, so I'm, I'm totally fixated on what looks like a gold record hanging on your wall. Oh, yes. Yes. And it, it has a story. Am I allowed to start with that story? Please. By all means. Yeah. Oh, well. I'd like yeah, to let's, not, let's not talk about this book nonsense. What do you, what do you got going on there Next. on the wall? The, uh, so the story of the gold record is that I am not a musician. It is not a gold record that I actually have anything to do with actually selling records about, but um, I'm an entertainment journalist. I've written about a lot of television and film, but in my previous incarnation as a different kind of entertainment journalist, I wrote about music for a long time. I was, I'm, a, I'm obsessed with music in a way that I'm not obsessed with anything else. Um, and I got an assignment for Alternative Press Magazine in the mid 1990s, which means that other people are listening to this going, boy, is she old. But anyway, so in the mid 1990s, I got an assignment to go on the road with Radiohead oh, for oh, wow. like a week. Now, this, is, this does not mean being in the bus with Radiohead because yeah, yeah. Radiohead 
like if, if we all call ourselves functional nerds, like they're kind of dysfunctional nerds, like they are not <laughs> letting girls on the bus. Let's put it that way. Got um, it. But it means that I got to I got to show up at their shows uh, about four or five shows in a row, Boston, D.C., Baltimore, Philadelphia, um, over the course of a week. And I wrote a whole this is like my favorite kind of article to write. I mean, in my perfect world, I'd write for Rolling Stone and do 5,000 word articles where I get to hang out with the band for a week and then come up with some sort of big metaphor about who they are and what life means and everything like that would be my job. But this was as close to it as I've gotten, I think. Um, so yeah, so I wrote this article. It was about 4,000 words long. I, I collected all sorts of things. I collected set lists. Um, there was a woman who came backstage and she's like, my daughter and I drove three hours and we don't have tickets, but could you please let us? And she'd written it on a piece of newspaper and I kept that. I, it didn't come to me. It came to one of the band members, but he gave it to me. Um, and I had such a great time. And the uh, the article that came out, they, they liked it so much. I got a call from the PR person and she said, can we have your address? And I'm like, what would they be sending me? <laughs> and then this this gold record shows up and it actually has my name on it. My I'm, I'm not last name Cohen anymore, but I was. And it says, you know, presented to Randy Cohen as if I had done anything really to make this. It's for the Benz. So it's mm-hmm. kind of their album before the whole world went bananas about them. <laughs> it came right before OK Computer, if you're a Radiohead yeah. fan, you'll know this. Um, and it was terrific to meet them all because they were all such unique personalities. And I spoke to each of them separately for about maybe half hour, 45 minutes a piece. Um, and it was great because also I'm from the East coast, which means I was able to seed the audience with my friends. I was like, like, Oh, I'll be in DC. So Valerie will come or I'll be in Baltimore. So Linda will come. And then I would get them backstage and interact with the band. And then I could write about a fan came backstage and said to Johnny, (laughs) you had ringers, journalism ringers. Oh my God. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, and if, 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 if you don't mind, the, my favorite story of the whole thing was the last person I got to talk to was Tom York, who is the singer and probably the shyest of them all. <laughs> and um, we after, it was after the last show. I'm like, I have not talked to you. I, we need to sit down and do some sort of chat. So we finish the sh- he finishes the show and we go like two doors down or whatever to this bar, this tequila bar or whatever, this mar- margarita bar. And we sit down. It turns out he's never had tequila shots before. And I will not say that I do tequila shots on the regular, but I have done them in special circumstances. And this felt like a, circum- a circumstance. So I said, we should do, we should do a, a tequila shot. So we each got a tequila shot. And I will always be proud that I got to do the whole sort of, this is how you do a tequila shot because there's <laughs> sure. salt and there's, mm-hmm. there's the lemon um, or the lime, excuse me, there's the, the lime. Bite, yeah. And basically the way you're supposed to do it is lick, shoot, and suck. And I think that blew his little mind because he was just like, <laughs> what is going on here? So anyway, that was, that was, that was one of my favorite parts of the whole tour. Anyway. So yes, it was a wonderful thing and I keep it up here for me. But then when we started doing all these zoom chats, people began to ask about it. I'm like, well, let me tell you my story. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I've since zoom started, I've been a fan of putting uh, cool stuff behind me. 
Yeah, and I actually just installed this. There, there's a there's a uh, shelf behind me with my it's a shelfie with my books that I've written. Yep. So it's like, please ask me about my books. Yes, you can't see it here because I'm in the basement and I basically hide all the clutter of the basement. But upstairs in the office I use for for the day job, I also installed a shelf. Mm-hmm. And I put the Hugo Awards on there, and then I put oh. uh, I put my book on there so people see it. And and it's funny because the thing that has become cool now is to do the blurry background. Oh, I know. I and know. I refuse to do the blurry background. No, because the thing is, I interview a lot of people for my for my job, and I do quite a few of them on Zoom these days. And I'm 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 nosy. This is one of the reasons I like doing interviews is I'm extremely nosy. And while the person is talking. And it looks like I'm staring into their eyes. I'm really just reading what's in the background. And I will be like, is that yours? Like, what's that painting? Why do you have that hanging up? What about those books? And it's great because it can be a completely um, passive way of conversation generation. Mm-hmm. See, I, I, I love being in a in a 40-person all-team meeting Zoom, mm-hmm. and I ask a question of the CEO, and then someone else asks me the question, Patrick, do you, do you have a mana potion light in the background that's changing color? <laughs> Why, yes, DJ, I do. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, um, yeah, it's great. I mean, I like it a lot. It's it's when I go to con- when I go to conventions and things, one of the things I like to do is I wear interesting dresses and jewelry and all. And I like doing it anyway cuz it's a, it's a form of cosplaying life. Sure. But uh, it also provides a great conversation starter and I see that with other people too it's like if you don't know this person you can at least be like that's a great necklace or where did you get those shoes um then the the stuff behind us in zoom I think is a great conversation starter or furtherer if that's a word I agree yeah so all of this is to say in writing (laughs) in writing about the world of media and entertainment and tune in tomorrow you're really you're you're writing from a fantasy version of home kind of Kind of, you know, I mean, uh, so fan, so Tune In Tomorrow is, is if I may summarize, sure, um, is about a fantastical reality TV show slash soap opera um, that's run by fantastical creatures. It's made for fantastical creatures, but it stars humans. So this allowed me to use a lot of the background that I've been working on for all these years. I mean, the, the, the phrase you always hear is write about what you know, and it took me a long time to really sift through this is what I know and this is how to write about it. Um, and I'd never written anything funny before. Some may say I still haven't, but I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping people will find this an amusing book. Uh, and I tried to do my best with using TV tropes, uh, you know, stories that we've kind of maybe seen before, but sort of threading it through this fantastical world because I like flipping things on their heads. You know, if uh, we, we look at fantasy creatures and we just think, oh, they just, you know, they have these lives that we're all familiar with from the high fantasy books. But I love the idea of, well, what sports are the centaurs playing when they're out running around? Like, do they do capture the flag and do they do like, you know, shirts versus skins. Like, I mean, how does that work when you're a centaur? And that's something I got in the book. Um, and I, and then the big conceit of the book was really, well, what, what entertainments do they watch? I mean, they can't all just be sitting around listening to, listening to uh, you know, loot playing. Pan and, flutes and such. Yeah, yeah. The pan flutes. It gets, that's, it gets, it's going to get a little boring and maybe they liked it you know, centuries ago, but now what are they into? And 
I just thought the way that we are into castles and dragons and all this real mystical uh, wands and potions and that kind of thing. I just thought they might actually be really into the things that we're into that we considered extremely mundane. Like, tell me more, more about embezzlements. What is adultery like? You know, things that we sort of think of as being very boring or simple or, or everyday. How do you pour water? How do you make Kool-Aid? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so, that's one of the reasons I gravitated toward the idea of reality TV and soap operas, because so much of that is a lot of mundane back and forth thing. Oh, and then we drove down the coast and, oh, and then we bought a house and then we decorated the house. And um, that I thought that might be the kind of thing they'd be really into and who better to star in that than humans. Well, plus the fact that the, the, one of the tropes of fairyland and of sort of fantastical creatures is that they, live in their own complex societies that often have like egregiously complex rule systems that you can become ensnared in, in contractual obligations to them just by speaking your name to the wrong being at the wrong time. And so the idea that there are fantastical beings that are creating something that can be as sort of duplicitous and rule bound as a so-called reality program where there's like, oh, we're going to have an elimination challenge, or we're going to purposefully put these two people as roommates because we know they'll hate each other. Um, <laughs> where there's there's all the, it's, it's a completely socially engineered environment that's supposed to come off as authentic. Or at least there's there's a huge subgenre of, of right. um, reality TV that does that, that I think has to kind of slot in naturally with some of the kind of creative assumptions and beliefs that we've had about the Fae Folk from, from, from Jump. Yeah, and I, and I would just separate like you mentioned that that is a subgenre. The right. kind of that, so there is the comp, there is the competitive reality show, and then there's what has been called the docu soap or the or the ocu soap as well, like, in like, like the real world back in the day. Yeah, yeah like the real world on the one world. hand was was completely fabricated, and let's put fifteen people in a room and see what happens. But people get real, and. There was there was reality there were reality shows of course before that, but this was the modern version. This is the one that brought us to the pass that we are at now, uh, with reality shows. And that one was more observational. It wasn't like unless you really screwed up, uh, you wouldn't get voted out. Whereas Big Brother, for example, is let's put people in a house and let's see what happens when people get real, and then we vote one out every week. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what I was leaning to was with this. With the, the fact is that. Tune in tomorrow started out as complete soap opera. The, the, the phrase "tune in tomorrow" I think is very much wedded to soap opera. And I used to work at a soap opera magazine, mm-hmm. but when I brought it to when the when the acquiring uh, editor uh, got in touch with us, she's like, "Soap operas are a little old. Can we make it a little more recent, a little more current?" I, current. I, I thought soap operas were bold and beautiful. <laughs> they are. They're young and restless as well. Yes. Uh, I mean, they're they're kind of like a guiding light on television. I know, but you only have one life to live. But as the it, world turns, those shows are worthwhile. Yes, it's true. You win. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've run, no, no, but, but all my children continue to watch them. I will say that when it comes to soap operas, there are some dark shadows. Yes, but do you have passions for them? Not generally because of the hospital, so... <laughs> You're good. You're, good. You're a soap <laughs> my opera. Grams, 
my grams, I used to come home from school and grams was watching the stories. So totally. I mean, you know, my mom was a huge days of our lives. We skipped days of our lives, man. Um, my mom was a huge days of our lives fan. Like and she told me she's through the hour the hourglass. These so are the days, the of, days our of our lives. Yeah, my mom was a huge Days of Our Lives fan and would watch it while she was folding laundry and stuff in the 70s. And she said they killed off a character. Uh, uh, it, was, it was a surprise to her at the time because, of course, no internet, no, you know, no spoiler alerts or anything. Um, and she stopped watching because it freaked her out so much. She didn't <laughs> like to be that obsessed with the show. And then when I was in high school, I started watching General Hospital. And the high school me had this idea that I was watching how real adults would behave. Oh no, baby Randy. I know. I mean, like, on the, on the, there was part of me that went, no, not really. But on the other hand, this was a way to sort of observe adult behavior. It was the closest and thing you had. I can yeah. just throw a drink in someone's face whenever they piss me off. Okay. I know. I will have four boyfriends, and none of them, and all of them will fight over me, and it'll be amazing. I'll just go to a strange town, and then I'll be related to somebody who's really wealthy, because that always yeah. happens. Um, and I became really into that show because they were doing a whole spy, you know, subplot. They had this thing called the WSB and it was very spy oriented and they had an Australian actor who I just had a big crush on. <laughs> and so that, you know, it, when it wasn't doing the really classic soap opera stuff, they were doing these really high, really cheesy sort of spy stories. And I was really into that. Um, and then I fell away from it when I went into high school, but then I started working at, at this soap opera magazine um, when I moved to New York uh, in the late nineties. And by then there were fewer soaps on the air. They weren't getting really good ratings and it's been sort of a slow decline since. Mm -hmm. Um, but I really loved seeing what went on behind the scenes because these people are working there. Can I say, can I, can I curse? Yep. Them? I realize oh yeah. We had Chuck Mendigan. Oh, good. Oh, right. Okay. Well then, then it all, anything goes, I guess. Um, but yeah, these people work their ass off. I mean, Just they don't talk are bad doing... about Star Wars. So no, no, I'm not, probably not going to get in that direction. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get baby Yoda upset with me. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, they, they work their asses off. It's they're doing um, it's some of the shows are half an hour, some are an hour, but they're doing the equivalent of about two two movies, two two and a half movies every week. Yeah, mm -hmm. no reruns. It, it reminds me a little bit of writers uh, doing romance novels. It's like a, right. Like it's a, a churn. It's, it's like a churn. Movie. There's yeah. so you've got a predictability to it because there's the churn. Uh, so I would see these people and they'd get 60, 80 pages of stuff they had to memorize, um, every day or every other day when they were on. And I, that's, they, they would, they would call it acting boot camp because you would start on this and this is how you really got into it. You didn't, you, if you were lucky, you got to block no rehearsals, no second takes. You just got to blast your way through it. Um, so I think that soap operas deserve a lot of credit in a lot of ways. And certainly what we see now in shows like, Grey's Anatomy or any any show that goes on long enough becomes soap operatic. Yeah. Uh, but and, some do it intentionally. I mean, I remember, you know, I talked about my grams. When I would come home from school, she's watching her soaps. And I'm dying because we have one TV and I really want to watch Scooby-Doo. <laughs> you know, Scooby-Doo, G.I. Joe, Transformers, Robotech, all these things are coming on, Grams. you got to hurry up and finish this stupid show. But then at night, it was the same thing. You know, she 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 controlled it. So you would get uh, Dynasty and Knott's Landing and Falcon yep. Crest. And, you know, then she'd had the nighttime soaps going. And it's like, ah, uh, you're killing me. 
Right, exactly. We need another television, Grams. Come Knight on. Night Rider's on. Let's watch Night Rider. Night <laughs> Rider. I love Night Rider. So, yeah, I mean, TV, there's a lot of TV out there that just has taken this and moved it to a weekly schedule. Mm-hmm. But over the 18 or 20 seasons that say something like Grey's Anatomy has had, it's a soap opera. Come on. Yeah. A, woman got yeah. impa- a woman got impaled with a, a falling icicle. Mm-hmm. And lives, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's goofy. So I would have disagreed, but at the same time, I want to get my book published. So I said, sure, we'll make it reality shows instead of soap operas, because reality shows in a lot of ways are soap operas these days. If you watch something like Selling Sunset or God Help Me, The Kardashians or Real Housewives of Beverly Hills or whatever, all those are basically soap operas. They just use real people and they have some some tweaking yeah. of what yeah. Yeah. situations. Yeah, there, is, there is one reality show that uh, I know the Faye avoid completely uh, simply because it's all in the name. It's Iron Chef. Mm, yeah, like, no, probably. no, we're not going anywhere near iron. But is, yeah. the, but is that a reality show or just a game show, really? I mean, you know. A little bit of both. It's got some drama. It's a little got A, stuff, little B. You know, yeah. Yeah. I do like the idea of a reality show with knives, though. So this is <laughs> That's a, that's a different take altogether. There's probably um, been some ep- some episodes of Survivor that would have scratched that itch, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. Somebody somebody who sharpened a rock, really. Right. Yeah. You know, got their rock. Um, going. Um, so yeah, that's so I, I I merged things in between soap opera and reality show and made it more modern uh, in that sense. I think one of the fun things about the conceit in Tune In Tomorrow too is the idea that the object of fascination for fantastical creatures is the mundania and the minutiae of our own lives, because yeah. that it, it, it's a matter of perspective that mm-hmm. whatever it is you sort of marinate in within your life, you become a nerd to. And so however fantastical it may seem to an outsider uh, that you can cast a spell or something and now your, your hair changes color or whatnot. And these people have to go out and buy a dye and do peroxide bleach and whatever else first, like whatever those angles of, of difference are, it is a kind of um, fantasy equivalent of the grass always being greener across the other side of the fence. I'm actually reminded there's a short story that I use sometimes with my students. Um, it's the literal first story I have my students read in the speculative fiction class. It's by Neil Gaiman. And it's called <gasps> Forbidden Brides of the Faceless Slaves in the Secret House in the Night of Dread Desire, uh, which apparently <laughs> is a shortened form of the original title, which I don't even know what the original title was. But it kind of, not to spoil it, but it sort of runs with that notion as well, because it's a story from the point of view of a writer who's struggling to create art and then realizes that what he wants to create is is science fiction. But because he lives in a world that's like, you know, um, dark shadows, basically, going back to the reference before from Patrick, he lives in this like gothic horror world where like, that's just how it is. Like, oh, Aunt Agatha's screaming upstairs, go feed her tombs or whatnot. You know, she's rattling her chains. It's Tuesday. Like that's that's all there is to it. Um, That what he really wants to write is science fiction, which is like the toast getting burned and reading the paper and being stuck on your commute. And um, (laughs) And that's science fiction to him. Right. And so you're kind of embracing from a fantasy mindset that same sense of perspective is is what controls our sense of wonder, not intrinsic wonder in and of itself. 
Yeah, it's true. I mean, what we marinate, you know, the mundane is basically the definition of the things that are worldly to us, the things that, uh, like you say, we are marinating in. And if you don't, then all those things are unique and interesting and fun and or can be fun in any case. Uh, I think one of the things that also controls a lot of the way mythical creatures or fey creatures uh, react to the world is that they have extremely long lifespans if they're not straight up immortal. So that also changes the perspective they have on the world. They can experience so many things for so long that if we as humans can come up with something that's unique and interesting and different, no matter how boring it is, let me look at your trash can. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's something that can be an object of fascination to them. Yeah. Our whole life is ephemera to them. Like, right, right. I mean, the things that we, they could just make something come into being, whereas we would have to grill that cheese or melt that cheese for the fondue or whatever. They can be like, oh, a fondue set. This is amazing. Look at this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have a character who goes into, a, a, a mythical character who goes into the childhood home of our lead character in the book, Star. And he's 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 thrilled because it's kind of this you know, lower middle class home that's in rural Maryland. And he goes in and he knows the name of the formica that's on the floor because it's, it's, <laughs> it's from the seventies and he just loves it so much. And he's, and he loves her flip clock. You know, you've seen those digital, the, oh, yeah, yeah. digital clocks yeah. that, flip, that actually flip things over. He, he can't stop looking at it. He like stares at it for an hour on end watching it go. Um, so yeah, it's, they, that, that's actually a lot of fun because we will look at that and go, well, that is so boring. How can you be into that? You could just, you could make, you know, glitter fall from the sky right now if you wanted to, but you want to stare at a clock. Um, so anyway, it was just a way to illuminate both the difference between them, the difference between them and them and us. And also to, I think, underscore the, our humanity. The things that we don't take any pleasure in or just think are are ephemeral uh, actually have meaning to some yeah. people or some yeah. some fae. I've got a I've got a character in my book. He's ten thousand years old. He's an elf. Uh, he saw he saw a car when they first were invented, but he hasn't been in one since. And he gets in a car and he's he's absolutely transfixed by the CD player. <laughs> right. And he's like it makes music. Wow. Music goes in. Music comes out. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's um that that's one of the main things that i wanted to talk about with the book um and another aspect i mean i i'll just keep waffling on unless you yeah, yeah. around or in or anything but another another thing i wanted to talk about with the book too was that concept of immortality because in the book um as an actor if on the show if you get an award your the very first award you get okay so if you get an award for your performance there's an award show because you have to have an award show uh, at, <laughs> there's an, if the first award that you get, um, freezes your age at the age that you are right now. <laughs> so as long as you're on the show, you won't age, um, which is a kind of immortality, but an immortality with, with, uh, conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not as though if it, it's not, as though if you get fired, all of these years will suddenly catch up with you and you'll turn into a pile of dust or anything. But, um, what I wanted to explore with that was what is that like when you are in this same job for 80 years, for a hundred years, because when our new hire shows up, some of these actors have been there for that long mm-hmm. and they've, a lot of them have stopped going home. You know, this is, the show happens on one side of the veil and we are on, and humans live on the other side of the veil and they can just, their, their, their dressing rooms can be outfitted basically to be as like a home. 
and they don't have to go home if they don't want to. They can eat there. They can sleep there. They have all their friends there. But the more they, the more divorced they are from the everyday churn of the world, the more alien it becomes. The world moves on without you. And I know I'm not the first person to explore, gee, immortality isn't maybe all it's cracked up to be. But I wanted to have that conversation about what that might be like to have characters who weren't intended to live longer than they have and what it might feel like to no longer be able to go back to the world of the human or feel completely alienated from everybody around you because all your friends have died, your relatives have died, you don't even know what this thing the internet is, you haven't been in a car since it was invented, you know, that sort of thing. And as a human, how alienating that would be. And from the other side of it, for your for your sort of ingenue, new starting character, that until you become acquainted with that, you mm-hmm. instead have this sense of urgency or hunger to like, I want to get that award because if I have it, it's going to sort of preserve my literal longevity and my ability to have a role or any kind of role in this sort of programming. And it's that becomes a really useful narrative device because it kind of mimics all the different ways and reasons that... Um, in our world, we have actors and creators of all sorts of kinds that go into extreme hustle in the interests mm-hmm. of becoming known and making a name for themselves and getting those awards and being acknowledged. Um, you know, at the time of this recording, it's like end of July-ish. We're not that far away from WorldCon. Um, mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people who are, who are getting very sweaty right now. Um, world <laughs> Fantasy Award lineups have been, have been announced and many people are are uh, cheerfully and graciously announcing that they're part of the ballot. But there is always with that, that sense of sort of like, is this going to be my one and only chance? Like, I, like, how do I make it? What does making it look like? And so that creates right. a uniquely fantasy incentive for how do I take what I know stardom can do to your sense of fragile desperation and kind of turn that up to 11 in a fantastical context. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And of course, uh, being on a ballot or, or especially in, in our world, um, I guess maybe it's on any, any um, it's, in, it's in any world where there is an award or a, or a sense where that people might get a prize for something. You have to pretend like you don't want it. You have to pretend like, <laughs> oh, well, it's you know, it's just a pleasure happens, to be nominated. Yes. I love being so many deserving nominees. So many. But here, read, read my thing. Please vote. Please vote. But vote for anybody. But please vote. Please. And, and, um, and I was also thinking as you were talking that it, I think it's true that in our world, there is a separation from people who once you really achieve a certain level of success, that also alienates you from the rest of the world. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm not going to cry for Stephen King, for example, but I would imagine he can't just go show up at Worldcon or something. You know, oh, yeah, I decided yeah. to come. Yeah. Even, you know, in fact, it's. You can't even go out and get a sandwich, right? You know, you've right. been an entertainment reporter for a while now. You're aware of the fact that it's not just like, I'm going to go get my groceries without someone deciding to be like, Halle Berry goes out without makeup. See what happens. Or, <laughs> right, exactly. And, and somebody's filming you. We've all, we're all little, you know, big brothers now and everything with our cameras and everything is captured. Uh, so, yeah, that, that alienation, I think, can happen without even having to worry about a veil. The more success you have... Yeah more separate you are from everybody else. And, you know, I, I think about, I did an interview a long time ago with a band and, at, and during the interview, one member of the band, they weren't huge, but they were medium big. And one member of the band kept having sunglasses on. <laughs> and I always thought that was the height of pretentiousness to wear sunglasses indoors and everything. And when I, I wear I asked my sunglasses her, at night. 
Yes. So. Thank you, Corey Hart. <laughs> <laughs> so I can, so I can. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Be the light that's right before my eyes. Um, so anyway, I, I decided to ask him because uh, we the interview was over and I just said, so, you know, what's with the sunglasses? We're sitting here in a hotel lobby. Why is the sunglasses on? And he actually said, sometimes you just get tired of looking at people. <laughs> and for many years, that was like a punchline. I thought that was hilarious. And I would use it as a punchline when I would tell that story. But in more recent years, I've thought about that. And I think that if, if you're really well known and you go out in public and everybody is looking at you, if you're well known enough that people are like, is that, oh, look, Hallie, um, the idea of always having eyes on you, I think whether you're not, you see them, I think can be really exhausting mm-hmm. um, to be the center of attention in the room is fun for about five minutes. And then please people move on with your lives. But if that is the case of, of your life every single day, I can imagine why you want to have sunglasses on. So you just don't have, have to acknowledge that people are looking at you. Could, you can look anywhere. You can do anything you want. Um, and again, I'm not going to cry for these millionaires who have four Oscars and are oh, boo-hoo. But I can understand a little bit more of that mentality and how we get actors who then have meltdowns or you have uh, you know, musicians who act like big babies and things yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. For sure. I, I always go back to I, uh, a Southwest flight that I had many, 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 many moons ago when uh, Star Trek Voyager was on the air. And I'm sitting there and, you know, people are getting on the plane. And all of a sudden I see a guy get on the plane and they had held some seats, I guess, for him up front. And so he gets on the plane and I'm like, oh, my God, that's Tuvok. Oh. And so the Star Trek nerd me immediately wants to get up and go talk to him and say, I, I love Star Trek. I've always loved Star Trek. You know, sign something for me. <laughs> and then I noticed that he's traveling with his family. Mm-hmm. And so none of that happened because I'm like, oh, well, he's with his family. That's I'm not going to bother him. That's yeah. rare. Like not not everybody would just sit back and go, oh, well. But I was like, ah, family time. I don't want to interrupt that. So, yeah, and I think these days people, you know, will, will carry carry their cameras, and like even if they don't want to approach the person, they'll be all like, "Look who's behind me." Oh, I actually did that with George R. R. Martin at World Cup okay. one time because I didn't want to talk, walk up to him. But I'm like, I'm like, there's a pig, and I got the camera, and I'm like, there's George R. R. Martin right behind me. Look, there he is. Germ's never coming on the pod now, Patrick. You, you, you blew your cover. So. so I think before we have a chance to incriminate ourselves as stalkers any further, do we yeah, have a minute to, to work in some picks of the week? What do you think? Probably. Yeah, let's do it. Picks of the week. Ta-da. All right, Patrick, do you want to show Randy how it's done? Sure. I uh, I probably could have picked something else just based on our conversations, but I already had this written down, so I'm, I'm going to go with it. Right now, Netflix has a documentary on a U.S. folk hero that has always kind of captured our attention, D.B. Cooper. Where are you? And this is about a group of people who think they figured it out. Cool. And they're stalking a guy. <laughs> you think is, and they're stalking him with cameras and stuff. And they're like, hey, aren't you D.B. Cooper? Why don't you just admit it? Blah, 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 blah. So uh, it's on Netflix. It's called D.B. Cooper, Where Are You? I, I've always thought the, the story of D.B. Cooper is, is fascinating, uh, especially the fact that his name was not D.B. Cooper. It was Dan Cooper. 
-hmm. and a reporter reported that it was db cooper and that exploded and so from that point on it was always db cooper and not dan but um you know it's it's the it was in the height of the skyjacking craze in the late 60s into the you know mid 70s uh where everybody and their brother was skyjacking uh jets and trying to get you know to cuba I think was like the main thing that most people wanted. Were they going to Cuba or away from Cuba? They wanted to get to Cuba. Okay. Yeah. But uh, D.B. Cooper did this, this something completely different. He he basically got the, the equivalent of a million dollars in cash and he jumped out of the plane over um, this forested area between Seattle and Nevada and he just jumped out of the plane and disappeared. And that has always captured people's attention. I remember first seeing it in, on In Search Of with Dun Dun Dun. If I could get that show streaming right now, I would be so uh, – uh, I just love that show. But anyway, In Search Of, I remember D.B. Cooper being on there, and that was like the first time I ever saw it. And there's been tons of things ever since. Uh, even Loki played with D.B. Cooper in, in the first season of Loki on Disney+. Plus. They had the scene where Loki is basically D.B. Cooper, and he jumps out of the plane, and then Heimdall grabs him and – pulls them up to uh, Asgard. And uh, so, yeah, so uh, it's an interesting documentary. It's interesting to see these folks, you know, using all the evidence that they have to point to this guy and say this is the guy and who knows. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. You'll have to watch the show to find out. It's on Netflix. D.B. Cooper, where are you? Very cool. How Well, Brandy, how about you? Um, I Well, I, I have something I want to say, but can I just really quick say In Search Of was like, my gateway into oh, all things. It was so good. Weird. It was so well done. As in search of when I was about 10, did an episode about, well, in 1980, all the planets are going to line up. And when all the planets line up, there's going to be massive earthquakes and, and tidal waves and things are going to crack apart and it's going to be just chaos. And my little brain was like, I have to prepare. <laughs> <laughs> Randy, the prepper. That's right. And, and the thing is, that was that was that was simultaneous or concurrent in any case with all the Cold War stuff going on and all these movies about nuclear destruction coming out. So I just knew I needed to be prepared because something was going to screw up the whole world by the time I was, you know, 30. Yeah. And that, I think, just was my gateway into apocalyptic books and apocalyptic fiction and all of that. So you got to remember in the 70s and 80s, they they thought technology was going to take off way faster than it actually did. Like 1989 was supposed to be NASA launching the last of of their deep space probes with Captain William Buck Rogers on the on the (laughs) ship. You know, I mean, like our deep space probes, we can barely get to orbit but we're going to be sending out deep space probes. Okay, yeah, sure. Manned deep space probes. Right. Good on you, Glenn Larson. Space, 1999. I don't know if it it was actually Glenn Larson, but I'm assuming it was. Sure. He he had something to do with it, no question. Um, So I I have a a million things, but the thing I'm actually sitting down with now and reading is is, uh, CSE Cooney's The Twice Drowned Saint, which is a terrific novella that is part of a sinister quartet. It's got, there's four other <clears throat> novellas in this book that came out, uh, a sinister quartet. And, you know, I, one day I hope to be C.S.E. Cooney just because <laughs> I want to have her brain or at least part of her brain. 
Mm. I've got a lot in a room right now, and I'm going to take that brain out later. When you say you want the brain, do you want it in your head or like in a jar on the shelf? I I would just love to be half as creative as she is. (laughs) Okay. When you read her works, she just uh, has so many different vivid descriptions and names and world building and so much that you just hear and you just marvel at it. I'm just sitting here marveling at this story. Um, She's got creatures that are called angels, but they're not really angels like we're used to with wings. They're sort of semi-invisible to most people. And some of them can have 11 eyes and it's, it's both creepy and horrific, but also angels. And (laughs) she's really good with that. She'll, she'll describe things that are beautiful, but you can also see the the real scary, sinister stuff underneath it. Um, And I've, I've been a fan of her works for a while, uh, but she also just had a book come out on the same from the same publisher who did my book too. She has uh, Saint Death's Daughter, which just came out in April, also through Solaris Rebellion, which is publishing Tune In Tomorrow. So I'm not trying to do a product placement or anything, <laughs> but I, I actually am sitting down reading this uh, and just reminding, remembering all over again why I love her works. Very cool. Uh, some some authors that I really like, I haven't even read all of their works because I'm parceling them out like a really rich piece of cake. Yeah. And I sit down yeah. and eat them cake at once i'll be very sick and i'll be very sad later because i won't have new stuff so anyway that's this fair. is the, that's what i'm doing right now, so. sweet all right i so. tell myself that that's why that's what my fans do with my book like they haven't actually <laughs> yeah, bought it they're yet just really, because yeah. they're waiting they're like, no, yeah that, that's totally why there was low wait. sales yeah <laughs> go ahead <Yep>. tracy <laughs> So I guess while while you're cozying up with your documentary or if you're cozying up with your with your sinister quartet or anything else, um, you might be feeling a little bit like I am today. Hopefully, Patrick doesn't have too difficult of a time doing sound editing for me, but it is currently ridiculously pounding rain and hail out behind me in the Chicagoland area. We had a tornado touchdown at like 530 in the morning. It's been wild. Mostly slept in the basement. Um, But. The upside of it is it's really easy to justify cuddling up with a cup of tea. And uh, today I'm treating myself to one I don't use a lot of, but damn it, I'm going to do it. This is a ridiculous tea. This is the Yorkshire tea brand, but it's the multi-biscuit brew. As in literally, they figured out a way to make it so that when you do that thing where you're going to like dip a tea cookie or a tea biscuit into the tea and then you're going to munch it a little bit, they figured out how to make the way the tea tastes after you do that from the start and I don't know how they do I've read the ingredients list like a billion times nothing in there makes sense it's all just like mysteries and flavorings and shit right I don't know there's sorcery (laughs) in this tea box but it makes me happy and so I'm just gonna mainline that today so if you're into that cozy sort of biscuits and tea feeling you can skip the middleman of the biscuits and go straight to it with Yorkshire tea's multi-biscuit we, we do live in a world where they can now basically hand you a potato chip that tastes mm-hmm. like biscuits and gravy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, they can, you know, they can make like gummy bears that taste like kimchi. I mean, you can do anything with food chemistry. <laughs> yeah. Be- better tea through chemistry. I'm going to go buy those as soon as we hang up. All um, right. <clears throat> pardon me. <laughs> I hope you mean the, the multi-biscuit tea and not the kimchi not uh, gummy bears because yeah. I have no. no idea where to find them. Good luck. Yes. All right. Speaking of buying stuff, folks should keep an eye out for tune in tomorrow. So where should they go? Where should they do to find you, find your work? 
Right. So um, I am at randydawn.com, and Randy is spelled with two E's, so randydawn.com. Um, if you can only remember the title of the book, Tune In Tomorrow, if you go to tuneintomorrow.com, yes, I bought the domain. Uh, it goes directly to that page on my webpage, so you'll get all the information you can possibly want. Um, it is available uh, for pre if it's If this is before August 16th, it's available for pre-order at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, all your best locations. Uh, feel free to go into any local bookstore and say, will you please get this for me? Because they should be able to pre-order it for you. And uh, after after August 16th, it will be available in all those places and you don't have to pre-order it. So um, yeah, that's how, that's how to find it. Tuneintomorrow.com or randydawn.com will take you right there. Every time you say tune in tomorrow, I'm imagining, you know, the person standing up with the microphone and they're holding their ear and they're going, tune in tomorrow. Oh, that's very good. I like yeah. it. There you go. God, it's, like he, it's like he works in the equivalent of radio. <laughs> it's been great having you, Randy. It's been great being had. No, I mean, uh, I've really. Right, yeah, I mean, so sure. <laughs> well, you're welcome. And thank you for having me here. Well, time, probably past time for a new bumper. If you like this episode, thanks. <laughs> we liked making it for you. There's lots of ways you can support us moving forward if you did like this episode. You could give us a review at Apple or Google Podcasts on Stitcher, Spotify, etc. There's lots of places out there. Wherever you listen to this podcast would be a great spot to go. Give us a couple stars, write a little review, tell folks how great we are. It would help. You could follow us on Twitter. Our account there is at FN underscore podcast. If you do that, please help us boost the signal by retweeting our stuff. You could take a look at our Facebook page and click like on it. Eh, I don't do a lot there, but it's a necessary evil. You could back us over at patreon.com slash functional nerds and throw a couple bucks our way each month. You could tell your friends about us and turn them onto the show. Any or all of that would be awesome. And I would really appreciate it, Todd. Now that this episode is over, you could also consider checking out our friends over at Beyond the Trope. Giles and Michelle put out an episode a week, just like we do, and they talk to writers, artists, and creatives from all over the place. They have a huge back catalog of episodes and have a lot of fun doing it, which comes through in their weekly episodes. So check them out over at beyondthetrope.com. As always, thanks for listening. And don't forget to tip your server on the way out. Mr. Carpiers, you got it right. How about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe. Oh, for God's sake. Patrick Louise. <laughs> Okay, that's probably a good enough signal. <laughs> the whiz bang and the gosh wow and the sense of wonder stuff. I'm so excited. <laughs>